401k advisors want to build a scalable practice, but aren't always sure what to do next. Welcome to Outcomes, the podcast designed to help advisors think, make decisions, and cast a vision to create a business for the future. Here's your host, Ross Marino, financial planner, author, speaker, and CEO of Advisor2x. Today, we are joined by Daniel Bryant, President of Retirement and Wealth Planning at Sheridan Road Financial Advisors. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ross. Great to be here. So let's start off with a situation that you and I are both familiar with. We'll set the stage. You drive up to the company, you go into the building, and you finally make it to the break room. And there it is, a room packed with people. And as we walk in, we know as advisors, this is one of the most important moments of their financial life. For people who have never enrolled in the 401k, especially the younger people, the decision they make today in that room can change the entire trajectory of their life. But as you're looking across the room, you spot some people and you can see the look on their face. And you know, no matter what you say, they're just not going to enroll something's holding them back. Can you walk us through that moment when you realized, I have got to dig deeper, I've got to figure out how I'm going to help these people, and you dove into a research process? Yeah, thanks, Ross. Uh, absolutely. That is one of the watershed moments when you go into an enrollment meeting and you look at the, uh, the audience, those participants, and uh, they look back at you and you know they are living and dealing with a myriad of issues, financial stresses, how to prioritize spending, saving, borrowing, and uh, you know how they prioritize uh, what's important in their lives. And um, yeah, about you know four or five years ago, we started to think a lot more in depth around uh, this this idea of financial wellness or this idea of how do we help people help themselves. And I think uh, what's fascinating about you know the study of behavioral economics is really some of the research, the academic research that was done 10, 20, 30 years ago. That research has sort of you know, grown and manifested itself into how we actually construct uh, plans today, retirement plans or executive comp plans, and today even benefit plans to help more from a socialistic paternal or paternalistic social uh, socialism standpoint where we need to help nudge uh, the participants uh, to help them make better financial decisions. I think left to our own devices, unfortunately, we as humans, uh, we don't make the best decisions, right? We impulsively borrow money or spend money when we don't need to. And those are the sorts of things that uh, we dove into to, to think about. And that's excellent. There are issues that these people are dealing with and and that's what's preventing them from enrolling or increasing their deferral percentage. And no matter how much education we provide, it's going to be tough to nudge them along, as you said. And that's actually a fantastic book. And I love the whole idea of we get up in front and we teach and we try to help people see their future selves. And here's what you'll have down the road. Here's what you'll need down the road. And who actually knew that the best way, in many cases, to run an enrollment meeting is negative election? We could teach them or say, if you don't want to be in the 401k, just check this box. Otherwise, you're in. Hey, there you have it. 93% of the people actually sign up. It's brilliant, but it's psychology. That's part of the answer. But we're getting to this point where 
they're not able to make that decision because they're in a situation where they just can't afford to save. So your research and what you tried to do is figure out how can we help them before they get to that point where now they can no longer save. And you shared some of that research with me, some of the institutions that you worked with and some of the professors, and it was a pretty significant list out there. And it made me think, how do you even find these people? Do you just shoot off an email or look them up on the internet? Or is it one of those stories of, well, you know, I knew a guy who knew a guy. And then all of a sudden you get introduced to them. So can you give us some insight into how you connected with these people and the kind of research that you did with them and what they were doing on their own? Sure. So I think if you think about the, the granddaddies of the behavioral, you know, neurological, uh, social sciences, so you think about Richard Thaler, right? Nobel Prize winner from the University of Chicago or Shlomo Bernardzi, who in our world, you know, wrote uh, Save More Tomorrow. And that was a chapter in, in Thaler's book, uh, Nudge. But there's all sorts of this next generation group of uh, um, behaviorists uh, out there in terms of Dan Ariely and what he's doing at the Common Sense Lab or Leslie Turner, who's now at Vanderbilt doing amazing research at, at, uh, around student loan debt and debt remediation. Um, but the short of it is, it's literally, you pick up the phone sometimes and you, you reach out directly, or it was friends of friends who got me in touch with them. I mean, Richard Thaler, I've known for decades. He's, he's obviously uh, a superstar uh, in today's world. But from there you get to, uh, he's had this huge influence over so many different people. So all the folks at UCLA have, have collaborated with Richard. Dan Ariely has collaborated with Richard. So you go down the list and, and it's a little bit of happenstance, a little bit of um, stick-to-itiveness, but I think the idea of saying, hey, how do, you, how do we write a book or do some research around, uh, around wellness in the workplace and the employer being the right distribution channel for these ideas and these practices, that was a little bit of a different take than, uh, than what they've been doing research on. So um, they loved it. They loved to participate. And uh, I mean, that's what they live for, right? Doing the research, uh, publishing something, and then actually seeing it uh, uh, implemented so it's an actionable plan. That really is a unique way to approach it. The, the books and the research have been out for a while, but to actually uh, approach it from the standpoint of wellness in the workplace and realizing that going through someone's primary employer is the right distribution channel to help with financial wellness. I'm sure that got some of these researchers excited to figure out how can we do this through the workplace environment, which was great. And you mentioned Dan Ariely, and um, I read his book, and the quote I have from Dan's book, it says, we're not just irrational, we're predictably irrational. So as I think through this, and, and I spent some time thinking about our conversation before we started, and you know how I'm big on questions. So I like to write down questions. I like to question storm instead of brainstorm. So I first wrote down, how can we help people save more? And your research was to zero in on the issues that really got in the way of that decision. So hopefully if we can figure what that is, we can help these people and then they can eventually save. So what is it that you learned? Yeah, so what we say is you, you can't save more tomorrow, as Shlomo Bernardzi articulated in his, his bestseller, unless you borrow less today. So if you think about millennials today, what we know is that 25 cents of every dollar uh, that they earn goes to pay back debt, credit card debt, student loan debt. So the average is about five, 6,000 credit card debt, 35,000 of student loan debt. 
Obviously, you know the statistic, 1.7, almost $1.8 trillion of student loan debt in this country. Three quarters of college graduates have it when they retire or when they uh, graduate and start their work career. Um, so they're entering the workforce, unlike baby boomers or Gen Xers, they're entering the workforce already uh, way behind the eight ball. They've got to pay off this load of debt, figure out how to prioritize things. So when, when they're looking at that enrollment meeting, going back to your opening comment of how do I save in this 401k plan when I've got 25% credit card debt overhanging uh, me and I've got you know X percent in my student loans. And so it's very difficult for someone to say, I need to save for an emergency fund, 500 or $1,000. I need to save for retirement, which again, uh, Al Hirschfield, and I know this is a little bit of a sidebar story, but he's got this, uh, he's a professor at UCLA and he talks about your future self. It's very hard for a 22 or 25 year old to think about their future self at age 50 or 60. Your brain actually thinks, it, thinks of that person in the third person. It's not even you, right? So um, that's really the, those are the, the drivers in terms of, you know, why uh, individuals can't save more money in their retirement plan because they've got this huge overhang when they start. 25 cents on every dollar going towards paying back debt. That's a hindrance. Obviously, it's going to be hard for people to try to segment some of their money to put towards savings, even if it's just an emergency fund, let alone a 401k. But I know they're juggling lots of bills and it's not an easy thing to do when you're coming out of college and you have all of this debt out there. But technology is now being leveraged. And I know, I know you love technology and there's no way we were going to make it through this conversation without me questioning you about what is going on in the tech world and what's going on with the venture capitalists. So they're putting money into different technologies, knowing that this is how we engage the millennials and they're using it in order to help them save more for tomorrow. So can you let us know what you see out there, what you're hearing as far as how technology is going to be implemented to help these people save more for their freedom? Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, we think about the 401k as this old, you know, sort of fuddy-duddy technology, but it is one of the most amazing uh, technology advancements we've that's been developed in the last 30 or 40 years. Think about it. You payroll deduct, you've saved the money. It's very, very easy to do. But if you think about the venture firms and the private equity firms, financial technology or fintech is has been the largest single investment area for the past eight years. For the, so let's think about that. So the guys in Silicon Valley, where are they putting their money? They're trying to help individuals lower their debt burden and, and, and save more money uh, in a myriad of different ways. So uh, it's fascinating to see where the money is going and how they're trying to drive those point solutions uh, into the workplace. So right now you've got hundreds, if not thousands of little point solutions. So think about Cashable. So if you think about Cashable, Camir, uh, you know, founded that company eight years ago, I believe in New York. It's a lending program that helps, uh, you know, an employer provide a lending program so uh, participants can borrow money and then pay it back through their payroll. Seems pretty simple. Uh, didn't gain any sort of traction until the COVID crisis when people needed money and they either had to borrow from their retirement plan or find another way to borrow money. And it's really sort of taken off. And I think um, if you think about technology, think about data analytics as well. 
uh, we can go in a lot of different directions from a technology standpoint, but big data, bandwidth, software technology solutions, and even ADP, the folks like that, being able to combine these things together has been critically important for the success of people being able to save. So let's dig a little deeper here. You just said more money is going into fintech than anything else. So venture capital money is going into the world of finance, more so than social media, more so than gaming. It's actually going into managing personal finances. Right now, we're late summer 2020. We're in the middle of the pandemic. I listened to you about a year ago at the Outcomes Conference in Denver, and you talked about the technology and what was coming down the road. Well, complements of the pandemic, we're certainly seeing an acceleration of the adoption of certain technologies. And I'm sure there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that I'm not even aware of, but I know you're connected with some of these people. So can you take a moment and talk about what you think is happening as far as the acceleration and what kind of technologies are moving much faster where they're going to be adopted sooner rather than a few years down the road? Yeah, I, th I think there's real, real quick to set the stage, there's I think there's three major trends that have happened or uh, out, uh, things that have transpired in the last five months. I think we've leapfrogged literally five years in five months when it comes to benefits, retirement, um, and technology in the workplace. So this idea of emotional, financial, and health wellness in the workplace, I think there's been this bright light shined on it in the last five months. That wasn't really the case before. So I think, number one, that's really important. The second thing is the CEOs and CFOs of companies now, Ross, they very much are in tune with this. I think, you know, a year or two ago, we would be talking to the HR director and they would need our help to convince the CFO that wellness programs were needed and important. Now there's complete alignment we're seeing at senior management board and HR saying, you know what, uh, if people are furloughed or out of work, uh, this, this financial wellness or anxiety is going to affect our entire company, right? Um, and then the third thing I would mention real quick is it is now millennial. It's the time of the millennial, right? So uh, the fact that student loan debt repayment was included in that CARES Act, uh, that is a direct result of the millennials turning 40. There's almost 100 million of them. They are driving public policy. And I think for me, that was one of the things that, that was amazing, which is I think our legislators realized we need to accommodate and focus on those guys. So the amount of technology being uh, driven by the employer has been incredible. And a lot of that, as you probably know, is, is um, included in like the voluntary benefits package. So now there are hundreds of options. Employees have a tough time trying to discern which of these hundreds of technologies I'm going to use. And that's what we're going to sort out over the next five years. You don't need hundreds. You need a package and you need someone to help you recommend what you really need. You need this, you need this. And that's where we are today. So now we're to the point where there's hundreds of options out there. And obviously people don't need hundreds of different technology providers or services out there, but what they do need is a package that is the right fit for their company. And as you were speaking, I had a kind of that next question queued up in my mind. Now, I was actually listening. I was present. I wasn't just drifting off. But it made me think that if there's all these technologies out there, maybe it's going to work, but maybe it won't work as fast as we thought it would. 
So I'm wondering, what is the challenge going to be to mass adoption? Because we know the end result is that package that really is going to help people customized for